What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Nuclear Barbarians. It is I, Emmett Penny, your Nuclear Barbarian, and I literally almost said, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to Exhaust. I like caught <laughs> myself right after saying it. Whoa. Okay. Uh, secret episode. Of, yeah, secret episode. Speaking of, former co-host of Exhaust with me is John Goodson, and we are going to do the next installment of our Machine in the Garden series. This is the penultimate chapter. So after this, we have the concluding chapter, which I think called like a world of ashes or something like that. And then the afterword, which we'll get to when we get to it, the garden of ashes. Sorry, that's the epilogue. But this episode is called Two Kingdoms of Force. So here's how this structure of this book has gone. Just to sort of anchor everybody, because there's going to be a little bit of a gap between the episodes that we've done. So to catch you up, the book opens with the conceit of what is the pastoral in America and how have we thought about that? And he ties it back to the Roman days and the search for this sort of middle land between the absolute wild and the over-civilized urban world. This is sort of our Virgilian inheritance. And then the next chapter, he wants to take a look at the garden. Like he wants to say, so what, how do we conceive as Americans who are outgrowths of this European and specifically Anglo tradition, how has that, how has our land been perceived since the early settlements and how has that moved through history? How has our perspective on that changed? And then in the next iteration, he takes a look at the machines. So that was the last episode. And what he, want, what he did with that is he wanted to take a look at how we received the oncoming industrial world and its interaction with this landscape that seems to have formed so much of our consciousness, or at least that seems to be a background argument here is there's a little bit of a geography as cultural destiny going on. He's not firm on that, but it is something that is certainly on the table and at the end of the machine section, he intimates that what we see starting in about the mid-19th century is a response to the collision of the natural with the mechanical. And that one of the tensions in American letters and thought is that these things are equally prized. The garden is prized because of our pastoral inheritance and the machine is prized because of our status as a thoroughly modern republic that is also a merchant republic. So we're not a Spartan or Roman sort of military republic or something like that. We're, we're a different type of thing. We're a mer merchant republic, which lends us to favor a certain type of technological innovation to welcome it as a commercial peoples. And that is why this penultimate chapter is called Two Kingdoms of Force. These are the two kingdoms that make up so much of the American relationship to the world, to technology, to the market, and even to each other. I think he's going to argue throughout this. And I have to say that this chapter is basically, so far, we didn't complete it. We'll complete it for the ne very next episode. 
This was a Bravira performance of total mastery of the source material in American letters. Whatever doubts I had about his engagement with some earlier writers or non-American writers, I had basically none of here. I don't know how you felt about it, John. Pretty much the same way. It's definitely like you can tell when you get into his full area of expertise, I think. We definitely did that before this chapter, but like now that we're in this chapter, like fully. I've, I had little doubts reading it that he knew more than I'll ever about the authors discussed therein. Yeah. <laughs> and there is a lot of benefit to like what he was able to pull out of like, connections. I think I never would have made, you know, just, it was really interesting. And I don't know, it gave me a lot to chew on, which I guess is what we're going to get into. Yeah, absolutely. So the opening, sort of the inaugural gesture of this book is he takes a look at something in, I believe it's Hawthorne's journal, what he calls the Sleepy Hollow experience, where Hawthorne's just sort of writing. He's doing basically like a version of watercolor painting. If you ever see those people who walk out into the New England wilderness and sort of watercolor paint for the day. I mean, this is like an old English hobby too, right? Of the aristocracy and then eventually the upper bourgeoisie. Except he's doing it in his journal, right? He's doing it with, with words, with his craft. And the Sleepy Hollow experience that Hawthorne has in 1844 is what Leo Mark calls the interrupted idol where he's having this sort of bucolic, traditionally pastoral experience that is punctuated by the arrival of a train. And this is the design of the pastoral in America after industrialism to Leo Marx. So he typifies basically three different responses to this pastoral design, this interrupted idol. And they are the transcendental, the tragic, and the vernacular. And so he's going to get at this almost triptych view of how we've seen these two kingdoms of force collide. And I think it reveals a lot about the American character and also the unresolved difficulties we have with technology today. Lots of stuff around the theme engine, the steam engine and the regimentation of life and things like that are conversations we still have about the algorithm and how it is socially patterning us in ways that we feel like we don't have full control over, that feel involuntary but and, and you know, compelled of us. So the transcendental experience, you will not be surprised, is him taking a look at Emerson and Thoreau. Now, John and I were talking before we started recording, and this is sort of interesting, like John and I have opposite experience with the authors discuss. So today we're going to talk about Emerson and Thoreau, and then Hawthorne and Melville. And I have more experience with Emerson and Thoreau, and John has way more experience with Hawthorne and uh, Melville than I do. So Emerson's an interesting character, right? He is seen as the father of American transcendentalism. Really, there are two different strains of American transcendentalism. One is a little bit more, I would say, like radical and communitarian, and that's really comes out of Aristides Brownson. But for a variety of historical reasons, including Brownson's conversion to Catholicism in later life, Emerson's version, which is way more, how do I want to put it, congenial 
to industrial and commercial development wins out over Brownson's view. And I mean, they're really two camps. So there are a bunch of thinkers sort of attached to them, including Margaret Fuller, who was Buckminster Fuller's mother, right? Um, so that congeniality to industrial and commercial development is exactly what Leo Marx wants to aim at here, is he wants to say, okay, we have these tensions in Emerson where he tries to come up with what I can only describe as a kind of like techno-pantheism. There's uh, a lecture he relies on called The Young American here to talk about that, and he does a good job. But I believe um, it's either in that lecture or in The Poet that doesn't get as much shrift here, where Emerson says, you know, let me see if I can actually just find the quote. And I'll just edit out this part. Blah, 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 blah. Okay. So he says, is not the selfish and even cruel aspect which belongs to our great mechanical works, to mills, railways, and machinery, the effect of mercenary impulses which these works obey? Okay, so that's sort of like the almost like Carlyle-esque response to the oncoming industrial world. And Emerson answers his own question. When its errands are noble and adequate, a steamboat bridging the Atlantic between old and new England and arriving at its ports with the punctuality of a planet is a step of man into harmony with nature. So here we have what is going to be the Emersonian move. Well, what he wants to do is say that these two kingdoms are actually the same kingdom. And he has this almost Newtonian gesture by which he does that. If you guys remember to our discussion of the machine in the last chapter, Tench Cox, the early American industrialist, does something similar, where the relationship between nature and techne doesn't need to be reconciled, it's self-reconciling. And it is self-reconciling through the mirroring of human mechanics with the transcendental mechanics of the Newtonian universe. And that's a gesture that Emerson has here. He's saying that the actual is not just rational, but it is also good. And so we don't need to worry about means and ends necessarily reconciling them with each other in the same way that we used to. And here we have what borders on a propaganda of the reconciliation between man, machine, and nature. And I think that's sort of what Marx is getting at as a problem in Emerson's thought that Emerson seems to be aware of, but could never quite square the circle on. What do you think about that, John? I just talked for a long time. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting because I feel like in some ways, the Emerson quote, I feel like Carlyle's kind of point was that there are not going to be any noble purposes. And he's sort of trying to skirt that by being less pessimistic, I think, about what's going on. I don't really know, like, fully if Emerson has a, like, 
super coherent background to his thinking. Whereas I think for Carlisle, you could at least suppose there's a heavy dose of like Hegel and company informing like the way that he's trying to think about the movements of like the world and like meta-historical phenomenon of just like the age is changing and now there are all these machines. But whereas I think like a crass materialist might try and say, well, because all these machines are, exist, like they're causing some things to happen socially. Whereas I think for Carlisle, it'd be a lot more complicated and not necessarily like A, you know, is causing B, but like this is like the movement of spirit all happening kind of at once in a dialectical, you know, parentheses, Hegelian version manner. So like, it's not quite that simple, but that part of the fact that the world is changing in this way is in fact like that we are going to lack the ability to have noble purposes. And a lot of his writing is like, it's like Deleuze said that Kierkegaard, like his philosophy was a primal scream. And I feel like <laughs> that's kind of how I would describe a lot of Carlyle when he's talking about the way that things are going is like, a primal scream against the ignobility of spirit that he sees around him and the like penny counting paper pushing like world that has sprung up and seems to run everything and can't really conceive of something like nobility any longer. So just, I just think just it's to, interesting. Yeah, yeah. I just, I just want to add a little thing on that. Cause I think that's just really important. Carlisle is also responding to like what advocates of capital were saying was good about capitalism is that the passions and the interests could be ventilated and harnessed towards more pacific ends through the market than anywhere else. That sure, there might be a downgrade in heroism or in virtus, you know, or anything like that. But what you would get is a more harmonious world. And I think that remains the most durable argument for the market, probably best expressed in Mandeville's Parable of the Bees, where private vices create public goods. And that, I think, is just a really important element of what's at stake here. Definitely. And that's, you know, that's basically it, is I just see it as there's just some fundamental, like, axiomatic differences going on when Emerson and Carlyle are in this, like, pseudo-conversation. And Emerson definitely, like we were talking about before the show, you can tell that there's a commitment to a kind of anti-urbanism. There's also a commitment mm -hmm. to the positivity of technology for life. Like, I think that Emerson probably has a fairly, like, developed idea of life as, you know, like something meaningful and of substance and not just like bare life, as you might say, or something mm -hmm. like, there's probably something to living for Emerson that's very vital that he would want to preserve and like make possible to, to flower. I think he's very committed to the idea that technology and that kind of living are going to like help each other. And the, the like qualities of urban life that tend to destroy, I think that kind of living as not really being necessary to what is coming. And he, in fact, like you said earlier, like the fact that he thinks that the railroad is going to export the countryside rather than make the city sprawl everywhere mm -hmm. is, as you put it, perhaps naive, but it's definitely an interesting aspect of Everson. 
just to clarify, because I think I said that well before we started recording. So Emerson, as Leo Marx quotes him, has this idea that he praises the oncoming of the railroad because what he thinks will happen is that as the railroad moves westward, it moves into wilder terrain and the country will come pouring into the city via the railroad, sort of insanitize the dark aspects of living in an urban environment rather than what sort of actually happens, which is that the city gets exported to the countryside and propagates itself across the land. So it's, I think it's easy for me to say that that's naive, but I also was not living in like the mid 19th century and trying to broker these things all at once. So I don't want to be cheap in my criticism of Emerson. And what he wants is he wants there to be this sort of like a Kantian level of contemplation between the understanding and reason that happens when we engage with nature that creates this transcendental plane, that the harmonious structure of the world, the facts of the world will creatively reveal themselves to close study. This is almost like a scientific spiritualism or something like that, that uh, Emerson is advocating for. This is really part of the heart of American transcendentalism. I might not be doing it as full justice, but we can actually pivot to Thoreau to try to understand what Emerson might have meant because Thoreau actually goes out there and tries to live that shit. Like that is yeah, the I whole think premise it, of Walden. I'll read this section really quick because yeah, you please just do. brought it up, but I think it's important to have it in our minds when we go forward. He writes here that in this reasoning, Emerson blends popular American pastoralism with a distinction learned from post-Kantian philosophy. In support of his preference for the natural against the artificial urban landscape, he invokes a familiar distinction indirectly derived from Kant between two faculties of mind, understanding and reason. The first is a willed, empirical, practical mode of consciousness, the only reliable instrument of knowledge in the Lockean psychology, which we've covered a lot in previous episodes, and which gathers and arranges sense perceptions. The other is the spontaneous, imaginative, mythopoeic, in intuitional perception, which leaps beyond the evidence of the senses to make analogies and form larger patterns of order, which is like definitely, that's a very, how will you put it? not idiomatic use of reason as, as we talk about it today. Yeah. <laughs> but like not entirely because that's part of synthetic reasoning is stitching things together that is you know like you could think of what like Leibniz does in a lot of his philosophy and it is sort of that even though we don't think about that as a creative work it kind of is but these two things being designated as separate faculties often difficult to coincide are going to kind of be like the philosophical engine for the rest of this chapter and especially when we get into Thoreau yeah, absolutely. So Thoreau, I mean, Thoreau is such a curious character, and I think he grew more curious to me over the course of reading Marx's uh, interpretation here. So Thoreau makes a retreat from Concord to Walden Pond, and it's sort of an experiment in living. And what he tries to do is live to abide by the transcendental schema intimated 
by Emerson. And it produces very mixed results, right? We see here the interrupted idol over and over again as the train incurs close to Walden Pond. We see almost certain kinds of, Leo Marx suggests, like an anarcho-primitivism, a Lydidic quality to this, but that's also very complicated by Thoreau himself. I mean, you see this over and over again, right? Like I'm reading Aldo Leopold's Sand County Almanac right now, and Leopold has this whole chapter on the hatchet. It's like a mini essay on techne, and so much is unresolved in it. So much can't be thought through because to do that would be so painful and sort of break the beauty of the rest of what he's trying to say about nature that I think Thoreau comes into a similar problem. Let me talk about an element of Walden Pond that is not quoted by Marx, but is actually indicates this. So the telegraph lines flank the railway. So when Thoreau was coming into contact with trains, he's coming into contact with the earliest form of electrification we had, which is the telegraph line. And he has a very mixed relationship with it. On the one hand, he abhors it for all of the pastoral reasons he sort of abhors the, the train. And he is also enchanted by it in the same way that he's impressed by what the train can do and what it can bring and how it can alter the landscape and sometimes even protect it or certain elements of it or encourage other types of wildness, something that Aldo Leopold also does. But when it comes to the telegraph line, what really signals Thoreau's weirdness is he walks, uh, he talks about walking up to a telegraph pole and putting his ear to it and hearing the almost cosmic language of the dots and dashes flowing through the lines. And it's this almost like transcendental experience in and of itself, born through the language of the machine that is interpenetrating the landscape. And that weirdness permeates what Marx is looking at when he's looking at Thoreau. Yeah, it kind of completely destroys the more simplistic readings, especially of Thoreau, that maybe you're By both his with. detractors and his fans. Yeah, absolutely. Like if you've ever met a guy who's read Thoreau, he'll have thoughts on him. and He'll probably be, you know, really unsatisfactory after looking at what's actually there. But he, yeah, he brings us back to the establishing of a middle zone when he talks about the topography of Walden, which I thought was interesting. But there's imaginably at least west of the pond just an endless wilderness and then i think to the east is conquered where he came from mm -hmm. and he's staking out again this like virgilian middle ground and you get a lot of interesting references like to mercha eliod's like axis mundi like the idea of a primordial center and the primordial center of walden being this pond where he's mm -hmm. making some kind of contact with a timeless dimension that renews his ability to like have ontic substance and like really be alive or something, which was funny because he brings it up and then just kind of drops it. So it's just sort of a like, yeah, I was just thinking about that. <laughs> yeah. But he well, gets into, oh, sorry. Well, yeah, I was just going to say, like in terms of living a life of substance, what we mean by that is that, or I, I take you to mean and Leo Marx and Thoreau to mean, at least in terms of this 
conversation is he's taking a look at the way in which Concord is industrializing. And what he sees is new convention that robs people of their ability to design themselves for themselves, even down to their houses. Rather, they fit themselves to the new clocks that are created to help everyone govern the railroad schedule and conform to them and stuff like that, right? I mean, there's going to be a lot of when we get to Buckminster Fuller later on in American history and the whole Earth Catalog, basically like a demand for greater control over the individual's place in the industrial schema. But Thoreau's problem is that by robbing people of this agency, that it, as John intimates, pulls meaning out of their lives that can't be recovered. Right. Negative critique of like conquered life. Like you said, the houses, he says that they rather than build houses to suit the purposes of their lives, fit the purposes of their lives to the design of the houses. Mm -hmm. And the men have become tools of their tools. Uh, there's a certain lack of, and introduces the like means and purpose dichotomy, which is going to be important, especially in Melville in a big way mm -hmm. as a like large social commentary, but that seemingly as part of the onset of these new waves of technological advancement that then restructure life or whatever, but also we are undergoing an ability to like have purpose, as you said like self-defined or like traditionally defined or whatever is not really like gotten into or that important, I think right now, but just that. I think purpose. that's also harder to grok in American experience, which saw itself as a new experience and Toto. Right? So tradition definitely. almost seems like less of a concern right now and fast forward 50 years and you're having a different conversation. Definitely. But just the way in which there becomes this weird default where like, it's no longer your concern. Why? Um, I think what Thoreau begins to notice is something Moby Dick really fully explores, which is what is the consequence of a bunch of people who can only live their life in the passive voice? Like what comes of that? And that's kind of what I think we're starting to see is like, People who can't really define their own goals or like aim at any and like what they are being aimed could be said to no longer be able to really play an active role in even their own lives, much less each other's. And I think this is sort of a boiling, like underlying concern of a lot of literature of this time, but especially what we're looking at. And like, you know, when you put it that way, Thoreau seems a lot less stupid than you might have thought he was. If you had just heard someone summarize, like, yeah, he went to go live by a pond because he, you know, he couldn't get real. Like he was, you know, yeah, right. Essentially, yeah, yeah. He, he beat a hasty <laughs> retreat from a world he sort of refused to understand. And I think, so I want to say another thing just historically about what happens with the clock in, as the electrical power system started to grow in the first third of the 20th century, of America, balancing issues increased, right? Ramping up and ramping down, you had to create a whole new technology for that because 
it had to be done in microseconds, but we didn't yet have technology that could register a microsecond. So we knew that interval existed in a glancing way or in a conceptual way. But when it came to the engineering practice of getting that done, we really struggled to figure that out. One of the things that really changed that were innovations in electrified clocks, which then also became products that could be sold to consumers that integrated both the utility industry's product and the timing sequencer that was to the second accurate into people's lives. And so when we talk about like, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't want to get my Ted Kaczynski on, right? But like, this is generally like the, the, the problem or the issue that people have is they're like, what is our relationship between something like liberty which is, I'm sure, a word that most people who listen to this podcast, based on who likes it on Substack, are very well acquainted with and have a positive idea of, and these larger engineering structures, which isn't to say those engineering structures are bad or wrong, but it seems like there is a batch of questions that need to be interrogated. And these are the guys who are trying to interrogate them to the best of their ability, right? And there is a question here, again, of means, purposes. I kind of want to go back to the Mandeville thing real quick. And one of the things that we're starting to say, see here is a response to the oncoming Pacific world of the market, so advertised as it advertises itself, as its boosters advertised it. And the question about what is a meaningful life, right? So when you say, give me liberty, or give me death, really what you're saying is there is something above mere survival that you care about. One of the concerns here is that people are foregoing those things that you might die for, for consumer goods. And that this is a really difficult tension that especially a Republican liberal democracy, a merchant republic like America has to contend with. And this is something when John and I read Francis Fukuyama's The Last Man and the End of History is probably like what makes Fukuyama actually so important to read now is that he's self-consciously like it. People might just rebel against the successful system just to have a sense of meaning in their lives. Like they might destroy it just to recover a sense of frisson, a sense of... <laughs> you know, the meaning here. And these guys are noticing that shift and they're like, wait, are there things that are more important than having the latest cutting edge tech or whatever it is? What are our values here? How do we square those with how we're going to live in an American way? And this becomes a recurring theme of especially the environmental movement going through the American 20th century. Definitely. Something that would be interesting to look at in a later time would, I think, like one big response to the seeming abundance of consumer goods is like in a lot of post apocalyptic literature where there's zombies or like something happens and it's all over. Like, what then emerges is sort of like a highly feudal, like war band social structure where you simply don't have to make any decisions about who or what you are because that's been decided mm -hmm. essentially like from the get-go like your place in the world it's essentially like assured in a very feudal sense 
rather than like being any kind of reassertion of this like you know decision making active like agent in the world or whatever who's finally unshackled from capitalism it's really the opposite like capitalism was destroyed so that i wouldn't have to like make any decisions or like be anything yeah. in particular yeah. Which, you know i think right. it just complicates the dynamic a bit we can move on yeah yeah just one <laughs> last thing to say on that rick roderick points out that you know a slave's life was brutal but it had meaning it might be a brutal meaning but it had he's like the question now in our sort of postmodern interregnum uh is what do we do with a life without meaning yeah you know where we're free right so again we might be the world of trade-offs here which is i think one of the things we're going to talk about as we go through melville because i think it gets closer to that the last thing that we should talk about is that uh is the relationship between concord and thoreau's abortive attempt at a bean farm mm -hmm. what he tries to do is live self-sufficiently right he tries to do it and it doesn't really work he tries to make a profit off of growing beans which are seen as very american as they're sort of in between over engineered European crops, but also what just grows randomly in the wild to the west of Walden and is instead a middle place in and of themselves. And he succeeds in only coming to know beans, as he says, but not in turning a profit or getting to live off of them. And he also, in a very self-conscious and funny way, describes that the worst part of getting to know them was having to eat them. But it shows that he is at least aware of, by practice, the fact that Concord can't be fully abandoned for Walden. That is not achievable in a real way. It is achievable in almost an intellectual or spiritual way, but not as an actual homo economicus, like habitus sort of way. It was such an ambiguous and interesting part of this i maybe want to go read walden honestly oh for but real he, yeah he like excoriates the american farmer as in no way the receptacle of any virtues at all which was you know like fascinating to see after what we've read if know, anybody was, wants like a picture of what he's discussing there in terms of like the farmer only caring about improving his lot parentheses because the lot is so fucking brutal and unrewarding in a lot of ways yeah. materially you should read harry cruz's a childhood the biography of a place which is his recounting of his childhood living on basically like a plot of sharecropper land in south georgia and it is like remarkably unremittingly like bleak beautiful funny and full of characters that Thoreau would have recoiled at for their quote-unquote self-servingness and their quote-unquote lack of virtue for trying to improve their meager existence. Yeah, it's kind of... It's very interesting because I think maybe at the heart of it, there's probably something that both talked about before and we both believe which is that poverty is not in any way inherently ennobling yeah not at all it's and like suffering it doesn't necessarily make you a good person and i think that's something that you probably encountered a lot more at least like in pre-modern writing of different stri like stripes i've seen 
to where there's essentially like, yeah, the upper classes kind of hold that the lower classes are incapable of like their kind of virtue just mm -hmm. because they have to worry about surviving. That's mm -hmm. just kind of like, it's an open fact. Um, yeah, it's like totally, you don't even have to argue it. You just point over there and that's what's going on, right? That's the sense when you read Aristotle's politics and ethics. Exactly. Like whether or not like foregoing a debate on that, just saying yeah. that like, it's an interesting fact that I think is rearing its head here. And like, it's easy to see how Emerson, for instance, could see technology as like doing away with yeah. like the and farmer entirely as being kind of a good thing if you think about <laughs> yeah. you know like maybe that is for the best like maybe people who can farm really successfully will do it and we won't anymore <laughs> and then that's just how it's going to be and that that could ultimately kind of raise us all up like not merely materially but also spiritually in some way because of what it enables us to do and like lives mm -hmm. that enables us to lead so it's there are a lot of like very mixed up concerns going on in these two thinkers and i you know it just it kind of humbles me in my former sort of like shoehorning of them into being kind of silly yeah no same and again in reading aldo leopold watching these tensions basically be unresolved in the work of the father of american conservationism is yeah absolutely fascinating and not just unresolved like uninterrogated it's like the problems are received and then an edifice is built on top of them without understanding that the contradictions make that an edifice of sand, which doesn't make it worthless as Aldo well, as Leopold would be the first to tell you since he lived on a sand farm, but it makes it a different type of thing than a foundation. So I think, I if think we, we want to move on, like, uh, yeah, I'll just say, cause it comes up again, the, the like conclusion to the whole Walden experiment as an attempt to find like sort of an outgrowth of meaning, hopefully by making contact with a more unrestrained form of nature. Essentially, as least as Marx puts it, what Thoreau finds is that there is a resolution and a reflowering of meaning and a kind of connection with something greater than you, but it's entirely within the faculty of reason as we just outlined. It is an individual, mythopoeic, artistic creation that an individual is able to find in any situation or place, that's kind of at least how Marx characterizes the end. Like what Thoreau finds out is that you don't necessarily need to be anywhere. The human being is kind of capable of seeing something greater in just about anything and that it's not really materially bound. However, that also he makes you feel as if that's somewhat with reservations that aren't fully stated and it's you know, elliptical to we'll say. Yeah, it is definitely elliptical. And so we'll move on from the transcendental response to the tragic one. So that's the, as far as we're going to go, we're going to talk about the tragic element next. And then the vernacular, which comes out of Mark Twain, which of course it does because Mark Twain, as any Twain scholar will tell you, more or less invents by casting it into the pages of time, the American vernacular voice. You know, like people don't even understand that that was his impact. Anyway, well, I'll save all of my praise of Twain for the Twain episode. Let's talk about Hawthorne and Melville now and talk about how absolutely sick the Ethan Brand story of Hawthorne's is, especially Leo Marx's reading of it. 
John, you spent a little more time with Hawthorne. I introduced both Walden and Emerson. Do you want to sort of introduce us to this Ethan Brand story from Hawthorne? Sure. So there's a guy called Ethan Brand. He like runs a kiln in the mountains where they fire stuff, I guess. I wasn't super clear on that, but it doesn't really matter. But one day he announces that he's going to go find the unpardonable sin just because I guess that interests him. So he heads out and the story kind of picks up where there are a father and son sitting near Ethan Brand's kiln and he like shows up. I guess like he accomplished the quest. He traveled the entire world, became like something of a renowned scholar from his meager beginnings. And he discovered the one unpardonable sin and it was in his own heart. And it's a quest for knowledge without any other purpose, like knowledge for its own sake. Um, so he comes back and it's really unclear whether or not anyone really understands the meaning of that or like if they just, you know, think it's sort of another oddity. Um, but people all like that he left to go do this. So like a handful of broken men all assemble from the nearby town, each who are like somewhat physically maimed and like fallen from previous material heights, like either members of professions that are now dead or people who can no longer practice their former profession. And there's now a sense. And a wandering this. Jew, just to yeah, throw there's that There's also a wandering yeah. Jew, which we don't really much consideration of in Marx. Nonetheless, he's there. And these people all kind of assemble for the return of Ethan Brand. They go off while Brand sits in front of the kiln and decides that he has to throw himself into the fire now because, like, he's lost whoever he was before he undertook the quest for knowledge. And that's, like, the basic outline of the story. And you get into, with Marx, a little bit more about there are essentially two ideologies of the quest. One is that when Ethan used to sit in front of the kiln fire, he would communicate with a fiend, like the devil, essentially. He essentially came up with this idea that he should go out and find the one unpardonable sin. And there was a kind of like malefic spiritual, malefic anti-spiritual sort of like inducement to this quest, which... You know, I think just to like pause there for a minute, to me, this is like one of the earliest American sort of like horror slash weird stories, I think, or like at least I feel like so much of what that genre eventually becomes is like germinal here in a way. Oh, totally. I mean, so when we were texting about it, before we got to it, I was like, I feel this story. So Poe happens a little bit before this. Um, the story comes out in 1850. So we have that groundwork. Of course, there's Sleepy Hollow itself by Washington Irving. But what's fascinating about the Stuart Brown thing is that it has these Faustian elements, which seem to become a durable part of American horror, both literary and uh, cinematic. And you and I were discussing not just the Faustian elements, but if anybody's familiar with the Hellraiser series mm -hmm. and sort of the search for this techno erotic extreme experience for the experience itself and how that becomes a sort of like cosmic nihilism that destroys your life. I mean, that's prefigured here. There's also 
we felt some resonance with Borges's The Approach to Al Mutasim, which is a play on a Muslim religious poem. What's it called? The Parable of the Birds or something, something like, like that? that? Yeah. Where these birds go out in search of the king bird. And it's the story of them entering all these different mazes and challenges and something to that. And, and many of them die. And what they realize is that the whole time they were, in fact, the king bird itself by virtue of embarking on the quest, which has to do with what it means to enter into a life faithful to God and what it means to commune with God. And here we have this sort of more Hellraiser-esque, Faustian aspect of it, where what does it mean to, con- to search for the obverse of that? And that that becomes inscribed on one's heart too, and then creates this sort of circularity that undoes one. Right. He characterizes himself when he's reminiscing as someone who is tender and capable of love and like feeling for mankind through this quest to know more and to find this one piece of knowledge. He slowly grew colder and colder towards the entirety of, of his fellow people until he sort of views them as if someone viewing an experiment or something at the very end. Like he's no longer capable of, you know, sympathy or empathy of any kind seemingly and what he has left is a feeling of this loss that he's lost some large part of his humanity which then drives him to immolate himself um right and to bring that back to okay so what does it have to do with the pastoral leo marx gets a sense that you might be asking that question by the time he gets done sort of explicating what mm -hmm. happens in the story why and he says well first of all the story is largely cold from journal entries of Hawthorne's from when he was touring some basically factories in the New England countryside and what he saw there. So we get the Promethean dynamo of the kiln, right? That's, that's part of it, what he brings over. And that what Ethan Brand's impetus, the thing that drives him reveals itself to be is actually the modus operandi of the enlightenment itself, or it can be read that way. I think he puts it as the unpardonable sin is the great sin of the enlightenment, the idea of knowledge as an end in itself. Uh, and that's what Brand recognizes it before throwing himself into the fire. So in a very subtle way, what we see is not necessarily a story about industrialism itself, but a story that has the locked antlers of the machine and the garden within it. Because after Brand kills himself, we get treated to like the most ludicrous, bright pastoral imagery that can be found, which Leo Marx is right to indicate is Hawthorne being a bit ironic. Yeah, there is a quote from Melville that, Hawthorne essentially deceives the page turners um, mm -hmm. with his writing in many places besides just here, where to a casual glance, you would feel as though you were treated to a very formulaic ending. And then you're like, oh, okay, everything's fine. Ethan Brand killed himself yeah. and now it's all going to be okay. Where in fact, um, it's far more ambiguous than that. You yeah. Know? So we get it because we get a few things, right? We get. One of the crazy things that happens at the end of the story is that nature brings forward a stagecoach mm -hmm. 
which doesn't make like any set like the words actually defy their arrangement in terms of meaning to be gleaned from them like <laughs> what's acting on what doesn't really make sense it's basically this absurdity and so what you're left with is this idea of that like you can't recover from what has the unpardonable sin you know it's it's it can never there's no going back and he says that there's almost this historical reading of what Ethan Brand embarks upon and what Hawthorne is trying to say, which is that, you know, there's no prelapsarian world to return to. There is no pastoral as we understand it anymore. There is just the world itself, which remains confounding, perhaps beautiful, perhaps strange, perhaps absurd. Um, but Ethan Brand still haunts the landscape. There's also something I've never heard about because I have not read Paradise Lost or anything like that, but a Miltonian strain and fire being represented as essentially infernal and satanic and the light of the sun being like the true light, which is a very interesting point of connection that rips us from Ethan Brand to Moby Dick. Which is wild. Yeah. It is wild how he does that. So just so, I mean, people should really read this book. I mean, it, it's worth it. It's worth way more than what we can even say in these And it's episodes. an easy read. Like, you yeah. def it's an enjoyable read. Like, you can yeah. pick it up. Yeah. You can take your time with it. You know, it's, it, it's well worth it. But one of the things that we can't do except tell you about it mm -hmm is how deft Leo Marx is at demonstrating like pure mastery over the source material. We talked about it at the beginning of the episode. We've talked about how cheeky he is with his citations and things like that before in a good way. What he does is he says, you know, like, man, this kiln sure looks a lot like these fires that are on, you know, the Pequod in Moby Dick. And you're like, yeah, that might be pushing it a little bit too much, man. And then like, he's like, anyway, here's a correspondence between Melville and Hawthorne that explicitly links this like idea, like, and how this ends up in Moby Dick and brings in the Miltonian elements that I've been talking about as well. And you like, and then you just, you have no choice but to like completely believe what he's telling you right now. Yeah. You're left with nothing else. Yeah. They're just like, damn, QED dog. I guess you're just completely right. <laughs> there's a lot in their correspondence which forms like this kind of bridge passage and i don't even know how much of it we can cover but again you just you have to and should read this book i think one important thing is they get to talking about goethe there's a passage they quote from i don't know if it's fair or unfair but he says you know live in the all or essentially like a certain kind of like your your personal identity of itself like it's illusory or it's nothing like connect yourself to like everything that's that's reality is like things being sort of all one and so melville says you know i feel like there is an immense deal of flummery in goethe <laughs> and in proportion to my own contact with him a monstrous deal of it in me but <laughs> He says, you know, like, what would that be like to say to someone with a tooth living the all, like you still have a tooth. And that, it might seem kind of trite, but it gets way more developed in Moby Dick, which 
we can just get into here in a second. He also says, Nota bene, this all feeling, well, there is some truth. You must often have felt it lying on the grass on a warm summer's day. Your legs seem to send out shoots into the earth. Your hair feels like leaves upon your head. This is the all feeling. But what plays the mischief with the truth is that men will insist upon the universal application of a temporary feeling or opinion, which I think like so succinctly summarizes the like tragic response to transcendentalism, just like in its mm -hmm. totality, but also is a really fundamental aspect of Moby Dick as well. Yeah, this is what he makes explicit what Thoreau was finding untenable in trying mm -hmm. to make Walden more than just an experiment in living, but actually a mode of living in and of itself. And yeah, so what happens is after this is like an incredibly impressive, both close and synthetic, syntopical reading of Moby Dick. I haven't read Moby Dick. I've read some of Melville Forder works, which share themes across each other. Enough that I can be very impressed with what Leo Marx pulled on here. But one of the ways that he starts to unravel, and by him I mean Melville, the idea of this middle ground, or, the, or not this middle ground, this idea of the pastoral as transcendent, is there is a moment where Ishmael is serving as lookout on the top of his mast. And he talks about how one can get close to that all feeling. And that it is majestic in its way, but in what seems to be a direct play on the fable of Narcissus, one can sort of get too lost in it and then plunge into its depths and drown. One can slip from the crow's nest and fall to his death if one sees too much of himself and then thus loses himself in the mirror of the vastness of the ocean. Yeah, there's a lot on there and it's something that happens a lot in Moby Dick or at least when it does happen the prose is pretty striking so you tend to remember it all these moments where Ishmael gets lost in like a reverie like staring out at the ocean and you'll occasionally get these like Homeric moments where like even though like all of the Iliad is taking place in this like battle area like there are scenes from like the sea and like different parts of the world that are then brought up to be illustrative of things and to give you a sense that there is a lot of imagery in the Iliad despite the fact that the actual physical action doesn't really move around that much and in a really similar way in Moby even though they're pretty much only on the boat for most of the story there are these moments of reverie where all of these kinds of like dream images sort of arrive and you get this warm opioid feeling of like being submerged into the oceanic, which is sort of what he's trying to talk about. Bears some resemblance to like, and I forget what it's called, but there's like the paper where Freud first discusses narcissism and how mm -hmm. there is this, it's a like narcissism is sort of fundamentally adolescent and that you have not fully, you have like a weak psychology or identity that's not very fully defined and so it's seeking to incorporate these external things within itself and sort of be lost into the oceanic which is likened to sort of being in your mother's womb like wanting to return 
to a feeling of like being incorporated in the all and thus sort of like primordially safe from everything and doing anything. There is an aspect of, and that's part of what Mark sees as like a journey of maturation for Ishmael, mm -hmm. because there are all these moments where he is sucked into this reverie, but then remembers that like one false step and you will die in certain moments aboard a whaling vessel. That through these experiences, he is able to lose a sort of childish desire to dally in these, these flights of fancy, these momentary emotional state and not accord them a greater significance perhaps than they are due, which is one of the like sort of fundamental aspects to the story. But no, I think that's right. I think it's also one of the, so, okay. So this is something that happens and it's a challenge to the transcendental worldview, right? There's a way where you could see it as an implicit, an implied critique that it seems Melville, based on his correspondence, did actually mean as a rebut to Emerson and perhaps Thoreau himself was saying like, no, 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 like that's not, you guys are confusing the particular with the universal, like it's not a passage from the particular to the universal. This is a temporary state. It doesn't mean nothing, but it also can't give you everything. And Ishmael's journey symbolizes that. But again, we're in the land of the two kingdoms of force. Moby Dick isn't just a story of a disenchantment with the hope of the pastoral or the transcendental pastoral. It's also serves as a meditation on whether or not there are differences between art and nature. Over and over again, Ahab likens himself to a machine, particularly a locomotive. The Pequot, the boat itself, is described as a machine. The harpoons, when the lines are sunk into the animals, are described in this machine-like way. But then at the same time, Moby Dick, the whale itself, has this so almost automaton-like behavior towards the end of the novel. And you start to see that this whole enterprise starts to have its own Faustian logic driving it forward that can't be jolted off of the tracks, right? The use of train tracks as a descriptor for what Ahab has locked his crew into and that he is sort of the engineer of this locomotive are really a big discussion of fate and man's relationship to the machine and to the garden over and over again. It, it is, and it is almost like you're getting a totally on the way Marx relays it, and John, you can tell me if he seems more or less accurate, but it seems like it just refracts itself over and over again, giving you different looks at this same difficulty without ever coming to real resolution. I would definitely say that attempting to find like a coherent, resolved like series of points to take away is probably going to be difficult as if with anything like of this caliber. But yeah, like, so when you brought up fate, it's interesting because, so he talks about how on the Pequod, essentially the entire crew are completely under the thrall of the captain, Ahab. And that is in some ways like the normal operation of a ship is that that's how things run. It's like, it's a dictatorship. But the Pequod is also kind of like a microcosm of the social world in which 
there are a bunch of people who are basically incapable of giving themselves a purpose. Like, why are they there? What are they doing? At one point, Ahab you know, nails a doubloon to the mast and he says, like, there's money for the first person to raise Moby Dick. And it reminded me of, it felt like the part where in the last psychiatrist blog alone is talking about Gary Glenn Ross and how they're like saying, you get like a Cadillac or whatever, if you have like the most sales and he's like, the Cadillac is not for the guys making the sales. Like they don't need any, it's, it's there to give the spur to people who are not, you know, mm -hmm. they're not the sharks, the people who needed that. Like you need that. I don't need that sort of, it was interesting because Ab goes into what is like one of the most stirring parts of the entire book where he's like forging these crazy like harpoons and you feel like you just got warped into like some aspect of like Cormac McCarthy like mm. evening redness in the west but turned up to like a hundred in terms of like the way that the prose is going and how many sort of like spectral and infernal apparitions are like rising before you like when Cormac McCarthy called them blood legatees, and you're just like, I'm not exactly sure like what's going on anymore, but I totally get it. Like imagistically, I see it's beautiful. Like sort of like, so you get this like high octane part of Moby Dick where Ahab just stirs everyone with kind of his insane purpose. But what's so enchanting about that to them is that they have no purpose. And so if they find somebody who's hell bent on something, it's very easy to follow that when you have essentially like, as I said, you're living your life in the passive voice, like that's an irresistible amount of will. And that's something that Marx brings up as very important. Moby Dick is the fact that Ishmael is the only person who survives because at a certain point he's able to disconnect himself from that will and no longer assent to being a part of this any longer. Whereas initially he kind of falls in, there is a moment he realized like you know this is insane and i don't have to nail myself to this cross yeah to put yeah. it very in a very quotidian manner like just read read moby dick it's better yeah, than anything i'll ever say i feel yeah. inadequate to even talk about it but it brings us back to the carlisle and the throat and the conquered aspect of, it's giving you a vision of I guess, as we've said, it's giving you a very tragic vision of, I won't say technology, but I would say like Melville's view of the sum of all the vectors of society that he's living in and potentially where it's headed. It's not only doing that, but that's one of the things that it's doing. And I, the fact that the ship is destroyed and everyone but Ishmael dies. And Ishmael survives, but in a very individualistic sort of way. Like he wasn't able to save anyone else. He wasn't able to change the fate of the ship. He wasn't able to like find a redemption for Ahab. Or like none of that really was possible in the world of Moby Dick as it has been imagined and like written for us. Like the only thing he was capable of doing was insulating himself enough that he was not also destroyed and was able to tell us about it, which is in some ways 
bleak. I mean, very bleak. So I'm glad you brought up Blood Meridian. So in Harold Bloom's introduction to Blood Meridian, he makes the explicit connection between Moby Dick and Cormac McCarthy's work. And I've read Blood Meridian a few times. And now after reading Leo Marx, I mean, first of all, it's like moved Moby Dick way further up the queue. And I'm wondering how I can fit it in to all the other stuff I also have to read for like research and stuff like that. But I think, okay, so I, we're going to start to wrap up here. What, really what's happening, this is, so this is the tragic response, right? These things can never be resolved. It's sort of over. The world is disenchanted. That doesn't mean it's hideous forever, but there's a pervasive sense of a loss of innocence and perhaps a loss of meaning with it. And there might be a richer, quote unquote, adulthood. We don't want to like fully commit to the stages of man theory of history. But something like that is happening in both Hawthorne and Melville. And I bring up McCarthy because Leo Marx writes, in Melville's hero, the thrust of Western man for ultimate knowledge and power is sinewed with hatred. Ignorance of the absolute for Ahab is a humiliation. He equates not knowing with being senselessly dismembered or imprisoned. Nothing could be further from the quiet tenderness associated with the pastoral feeling of nature. Ahab's vengeful drive is directed not toward but through the visible universe. In one unforgettable metaphor, he sums up the reckless, violent irreverence implicit in the quote-unquote progress of quote-unquote advanced civilization. All objects, man, all visible objects, man, he cries, are but as pasteboard masks. If man will strike, strike through the mask. So he has this drive. He doesn't want money. That's not what he's in it for. This is Ethan Brand's drive in a way. He shares it with Hawthorne's character. That's part of the connection Leo Marx is making here. Why I bring up Blood Meridian is there is a scene where the judge who looks- I think we both thought of this at the same exact time when reading Yeah, it. <laughs> reading this. The judge who looks almost like the whale itself and is a strange figure in that book, he comes across ancient inscriptions in the desert west and records them fastidiously in his journal, puts away his journal and picks up a pot shard and then scrapes them off the wall. And one of the random cowboys that's with them, he's basically like, dude, what was that about? And he looks at the guy and he says, that which exists without my knowledge exists without my consent. That is the transition, I think, from the worries about industrialism and the world that we're in today and what it means for us, not necessarily as a critique of technology, but almost on an ontological level. Who are we now that these things have happened and what it's like after the first two world wars and after Vietnam? And that's when Cormac McCarthy is writing about a period of American history that tracks actually almost right along with the period of history that Melville is living through. And that I think is one of the things that we're trying to get at with why we think not only is this an important work, but there are things to think about in terms of energy and technology that are beyond just our petty political debates of the day to day, but get at 
the questions of what kind of world are we making and who might we be made be making ourselves into if it's possible to make ourselves into something else at all through all of these gizmos and gadgets that obviously some of them I love very much. That's why this is called nuclear barbarians. But this is really, really what I've learned about intellectual thinking and philosophies, I could say, or maybe this is probably true even of art, is that really what you're doing is passing on your problems to other people. So consider this, what I hope will be a productive little piece of lemon in the milk that <laughs> rouses thoughts of your own to interrogate this on richer terms, if we've done that. And I hope we have, because that is, I think, our duty in doing this. And I think I'm happy with ending it there. John, I don't know if you have any final words on this section before we depart. No, I think we're good. Nothing worth dwelling on. Perhaps next time. Yeah, next time. Well, we're going to get into Twain, which I think is because it's Twain going to be a raucous good time and also <laughs> quite sad as it is with Twain. And so we'll get into that as well, along with the conclusion and the afterword, which should give us much to chew on as ever. Stay sharp, stay strong, and stay radiant. We will see you next time.